how's it going, everybody? Uh, this is the Game Trail Podcast. This is Trail Kreitzer. Uh, I'm the host of the Game Trail Podcast. Uh, this is going to be my seventh episode. Uh, sixth episode, got a lot of good feedback. Uh, we had Jared Knighton talking spot and stock mule deer. Uh, I've been following along with his hunt, uh, and it looks like he maybe tagged out on a, on a general season buck in Utah. So pretty cool. Shout out to him. Uh, I appreciate everybody that submitted feedback uh, as a per request at the end of that episode. Uh, we had some reviews on uh, Spotify, uh, the platforms that you guys listen to, so I really appreciate that. Um, in regards to that, I saw some people that had suggested that uh, it was annoying that you know people were talking over each other, and I fully understand that. I agree. I thought it was annoying as well. Um, it's just hard when we do some of these podcasts remote. Uh, the connection, depending on you know his connection or my connection, it might be a ever so slight delay and at times we do uh, talk over each other but I am trying to work the kinks out of that so you know I appreciate your patience hopefully you guys will stick with me and and continue to tune in and I hope I can offer to you guys some information that'll help you Uh, but I do appreciate genuinely that you guys uh, left reviews per request Um, you know I I hope you'll continue to do so if you like the podcast uh, you know reach out to me also as well if you got questions Uh, I've received a bunch of dms and emails and I've been trying to get back to individuals that have asked questions, so I would I genuinely appreciate that. So keep that up. Uh, before I get going on this episode, uh, I want to hit a couple promos. Uh, one being our own promo here at Go Hunt. Uh, so if you guys are looking to sign up for a Go Hunt Insider account, which is the research p- platform uh, that we offer here at Go Hunt, you can use the promo code Game Trail. That's G A M E T R A I L. When you sign up, and we will give you 50 points, that's $50 back into the Go Hunt gear shop that you can use towards the purchase of any equipment that you would like in the shop. Uh, if you want to sign up for a Go Hunt Maps, which uh, uh, that membership is called Explorer, we're going to give you 20 points back. Uh, and again, you can use that towards the purchase of any gear that you want in the shop. Uh, now is still a really good time to do some research. There's still some opportunities to buy an over-the-counter elk permit in a state like Colorado. Uh, also, you've got some point-only purchase timeframes coming up in states like Oregon, Montana, uh, Wyoming. Uh, so if you want to be aware of how those draw systems work and how you can actually just either purchase preference or bonus points, uh, you want to dive in and do that, and you can do so in your Go Hunt Insider Research account. And even though we're we're not even really into hunting season yet, I'm already kind of thinking about the potential for next year. You know, what's on the docket for next year based on the number of points I have in the various states. So now's a really good time to sign up for a Go Hunt Insider uh, account. So like I said, use my promo code GameTrail. I would really appreciate that. Uh, the other thing I wanted to note, not a promo, but I just wanted to highlight that uh, I've got a sponsor now. So Matthews Archery was kind enough to sponsor the podcast Uh, I bought my first Matthews bow in 2002, which was a Matthews Q2. Uh, I used that bow that first year. I killed my very first six-point bull elk that year with that bow. Uh, Ever since then, I've fallen completely in love with archery and the entire process of archery and bow hunting. Uh, And I've had a bunch of Matthews bows over the years, and I absolutely love their product. I love the bows. They aim and hold really well. Um, You know, my fondest memories are all, you know, created with the Matthews bow in my hand, to be honest. So uh, I appreciate those guys supporting the podcast. Uh, I really like that company. I like the product they produce. So if you guys uh, are looking for a new bow that you can absolutely trust, that's accurate, it's built to bow hunt, uh, check out Matthews Archery and and their options. So I wanted to hit those first. Uh, Now I'm going to dive into kind of the meat and potatoes of the podcast. 
Uh, I won't have a guest this week. It's just going to be me. Uh, I like to do this every now and then just to talk about things that I've kind of had on my mind. Um, you know, I spent the last week, last couple weekends actually out uh, hunting general season deer and elk here in Utah. Uh, had a close call, you know, on a cow elk I could have killed. Uh, decided to pass on that because she had a calf with her. Uh, I've seen some good bucks. I haven't really seen the buck that I'm ultimately looking for, um, but I'm hopeful. You know, I've heard some rumors and I've got some ideas on an area that I can really push into, and I'm hoping that I'm going to turn that buck up. Uh, I've got, uh, you know, the rest of this next week off to hunt. I'm going to enjoy the Labor Day holiday, and I'm going to put that to use in the woods, and hopefully I can turn up a buck. But when I'm out there uh, alone, which I am a lot, uh, I like that type of hunting. I like that style of hunting. Um, You know, I get a lot of time to think. So, you know, that's kind of what generates these topics and kind of pop into my mind. And I'm hoping hoping that I can pass on, you know, some stories. I like stories. I like uh, hearing other people's hunting stories. And then I also like to hear the lessons that they learned from their hunts. And so that's what I'm going to do today. And since this podcast is going to drop in, you know, the best month in the calendar year, which is September, I wanted to highlight some lessons that I've learned and just share some elk hunting stories. Uh, The first one that I wanted to share uh, happened on uh, a late season archery elk hunt in Arizona. So, you know, this isn't your, your typical September hunt, but I did learn a lesson on this hunt, which... I want to dive into and, and talk about, and, and hopefully it can help you guys in September or, you know, throughout your, your season. So this hunt, late November, uh, archery spot and stock elk hunt in Arizona. Um, it was a, a tough hunt, really cold. You know, I probably got five inches of snow within the first two days. Uh, the temperatures were almost hitting single digits, which is weird, you know, for the area, but it was it was a cold, hard hunt. And, uh, I would, I'd remembered, um, you know, I was sitting on this overlook and I'd seen these bulls down in this Canyon and they were kind of working up the Canyon and it's really thick. And I thought, you know, if I lose the elevation, I get down in there, they're going to be tough to find. But ultimately that's really the only opportunity that I've got. And I just decided, you know, I'm going to dive in there after them, but I'm going to take, you know, two or three days worth of food. And once I get down into this canyon country, hopefully I can pop up and still find some overlooks to still glass some country when I get down in there. But I decided that was probably the only opportunity I was going to have to harvest a bull is if I actually just dove off in there and I spent my time down into that country because they weren't really moving out into the open stuff. So I dove off into this canyon, uh, chased these these elk, kind of tried to figure out where I thought they were going to be. And uh, didn't turn them up that night. Uh, that night, I stayed down in there, and I had kind of a second storm come through. The wind was absolutely howling, you know, 30-mile-an-hour gusts. Uh, at one point, I think it was like 2 or 3 in the morning, I had a giant ponderosa pine uh, come down, and it fell probably 60 feet from where I was sleeping in my bivy sack and my sleeping bag. And it absolutely scared me to death, which, you know, there's a lesson in that, you know, be really careful about where you decide to camp in high winds, you know, make sure that there's, there's no standing dead, you know, leaning dead that could potentially fall on you. But, um, it scared me enough that I grabbed everything that I had. I threw it in my backpack and I hiked towards the top of the ridge where I had a little bit more open country where I felt a little bit safer. So, uh, got up there, made camp. Uh, I think I ended up getting up at, you know, six o'clock in the morning and, and kind of starting to get my stuff together. The wind was still blowing really hard. 
uh, and I started thinking, you know, if there are any elk in this country, you know, they're going to be down the bottom of this canyon out of the wind. So it started to get light. I was sitting there on this face and I was kind of looking down into the canyon and I saw a, a bedded bull. He was already bedded when it was light, uh, just kind of staying out of the wind. And I liked my chances based on where he was bedded. I had the wind blowing from him to me. And I thought, you know, I can use that as cover both for sound and there's probably a really good opportunity to slip in and kind of parallel work up to him and potentially get a shot. So I uh, threw everything in my backpack. I dove off into the canyon. I started up the other side and I got kind of on his same level and I just started working in towards him. And I couldn't see him the entire time, but I would kind of catch glimpses of him and I just kept working in, kept working in and kind of lost him for maybe 10 minutes and finally kind of popped around this big tree and he got up and he was starting to feed and he was kind of feeding away from me so I just kind of limped along behind him and I think I eventually got to about 45 yards and he was facing dead away from me and I thought you know if he turns there's a potential I might get a shot Uh, I also thought you know with the wind masking my sound Uh, I thought, you know, I would like to get as close as I possibly can, just given the fact that I don't like to make a shot in the wind. It's just tough to shoot in the wind as it is. So I just kept working and I eventually ended up getting another 10 yards and I got to about 35, 36 yards on this bull. And I remember he kind of worked around this big juniper and he kind of was quartering away from me. And I thought, yeah, I I have the opportunity to shoot right here. So I drew back, I anchored in. You know, I let the pin settle and the shot broke. And I remember at the shot, uh, I remember a couple of things. I remember one thinking it was kind of behind the last rib headed towards uh, his opposite front leg, which, you know, there's a lesson in that as well. Uh, I've talked to guys often, you know, whether the bull is standing broadside or whether the bull is quartering away, I think they, they have a tendency to to aim and put that arrow as close to that shoulder as you possibly can, kind of right in that pocket. And you got to remember that if you're shooting at an animal and he's quartering away, um, you want that arrow actually to hit further back. And your 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 reference, your aiming point, uh, you want that to be the opposite side leg, that front leg. Um, so think about that, you know, don't just pull back if an animal's quartering away. I like a quartering away shot an animal. You have a lot of vitals, a lot of opportunity to lethally and, um, you know, quickly kill that animal. So, you know, use that opposite front leg as kind of your, your guiding reference when you're aiming at a quartering away animal. Anyway, I, I hit this bull and... I remember I didn't think that I got a ton of penetration. I remember seeing a decent part of the arrow sticking out. Um, I remember that the sound was really loud. It was kind of that loud thwack. Um, And I remember the reaction. So this bull uh, immediately kind of lurched, lunged, and he ran a few steps. And then he stood for a second. I didn't have the opportunity to get a follow-up shot. And then he just started walking and he walked through this thick timber and he walked down into the bottom of the canyon and kind of disappeared into the timber and I lost him. Um, This is kind of the point in the podcast where I wanted to talk about what happens after the shot. Uh, I hope that you're all lucky enough to get a shot on a buck or a bull this year. 
Uh, but I wanted to talk a little bit and share some tips and tricks that hopefully can help you from the point of actually making a shot uh, to hopefully retrieving your animal. And a big part of that is reading the signs, you know, what happened when you shot. And then also reading any kind of sign that you can get from the arrow or, you know, from the blood that you're seeing on the ground. So there's some things that I wanted to, to just touch on before I even get going. Um, you know, typically after a shot, I would highly suggest that you give it 20 to 30 minutes before you even try to move up on, on the animal or up into where you actually shot the animal. Um, some people, you know, they might disagree. They might think that you, you ought to run right up to the blood and try to figure it out pretty quick. And that will give you an indication as whether you can go and try to retrieve that animal or, you know, whether to back out and wait. Uh, in my opinion, I think you keep a low pro low profile. Um, you know, I've seen guys recently, I've watched some YouTube videos, you know, they make a shot. They think the shot is good. And a lot of times in those moments, you might think the shot is perfect. Uh, but it's just like when a crime happens and they ask eyewitnesses about what happened. Uh, those re reenactments, those memories that people have, in a lot of cases, they're not what happened. And you might think you made the best shot in the world, but reality is, is you probably actually don't know and remember exactly what happened. So in my opinion, I think you give it time and you keep a really low profile. Um, you know, don't whoop and holler. Um, I've seen some guys make a shot and they thought the shot was perfect and I've immediately seen them starting to whoop and holler and I understand that completely. I understand the excitement associated with that moment and thinking that you just made a really great shot. But it may take time for that animal to expire and you never actually, like I said, you really, you never really know exactly where you hit until you find the animal. So do everything that you possibly can to keep a low profile. Don't make any extra noise. Don't whoop and holler, celebrate, you know, keep a, keep it, keep it tight, right and tight. I should say, just, you know, keep a low profile until you actually get a chance to get up and, and find blood and start to assess the situation. So that's one little tip I would give you. Um, I would say, like I said, give it 30 minutes. Uh, and I like 30 minutes before you even move up to try to find first blood because I think it gives you a good opportunity to collect your nerves. You know, you don't make good decisions when you're in a heightened state. If you've got a lot of adrenaline pulsing through your system, you almost need some time to decompress and think the situation through before you start blood trailing. And blood trailing can be a really tedious task. It can take a long time you know, it can be sparse and it can be really, really taxing both mentally and physically on you. And I think I like that 30 minute window to just try to get my mind right. You know, calm down, try to recount the situation, think it through, think about what I saw. You know, if you've got the opportunity to hunt with a buddy, you know, ask him what he saw. Uh, if you got a camera guy or if you film the shot, review the footage, that's probably the best opportunity you have to, to give you a good idea of where you hit. Uh, if you didn't have the opportunity to look at footage, just relive that in your mind. Uh, another thing that I really like to do during that half hour before you even go up and try to find first blood is I like to take notes. So, you know, I'll pull out my phone. I'll use the note portion of my phone to make notes. You know, was the bull standing broadside? Was he quartering away? Was he quartering to me? Was he frontal? Uh, how far was the shot? Uh, how did I feel about the shot? You know, did I feel good about it? Did it feel like it hit right behind the pin where I was aiming? 
uh, you know, did I not feel good about it? Like, what was my initial reaction to the shot? And I think a lot of cases you kind of know, um, but it's good to make notes of it. Uh, I like to also take my phone and take pictures. So I'll take a picture of the exact window where I shot so that I've got that for reference on what it looked like, what the tree would look like, or what the brush looked like, or whatever it is that uh, is in that landscape that I can use to reference. Because sometimes when you shoot an animal, really all you're focusing on is that animal itself. And you're not really thinking about, um, you know, what's around it, what does it look like. And so when you actually go up and you try to find first blood or find your arrow, it's really hard to tell because you really didn't take inventory of, you know, the vegetation, the trees, what it looked like before you started up there. Um, you were just so focused on that animal that when you actually get up there, it can be really hard to even tell. Um, so I like, I like to take a picture. Uh, I also like to use the, the little drawing feature on my phone and actually mark the exact spot in that picture where that animal was standing when I shot. Um, all these types of things I think can, can help you uh, recover that animal. Uh, like I said, I also like to just take that half hour to calm myself down. Um, I think it's a really good time to eat something. Uh, if you actually start the blood trailing process, you're going to want to have some food in your system. Uh, you're going to have you're going to want to have water and stay hydrated. So I think it's a really good time to to get some water and some electrolytes in your system. Uh, if you have to make a follow-up shot, you want to check and make sure that you are prepared to do so. I think it's good to, you know, check your arrows, check your bow, make sure everything is good to go. Um, just really use that half hour, in my opinion, to calm down, collect yourself, collect your notes, um, you know, mark the point with a GPS. If you're using that on your phone, mark that exact point. I also carry some flagging in my kill kit, which I would use to mark the position where you shot from. And then also when you get up and find first blood, you can mark it with your flagging. And then as you're starting to blood trail, I like to use flagging to mark individual blood. Uh, pull your flagging as you go. I hate when I'm out in the woods and you find a bunch of random flagging. So, you know, pull your flagging as you're going and you're blood trailing, you know, put that flagging on last known blood and then kind of move out along. Um, so those are all, you know, tips and tricks. Uh, I wanted to touch on kind of finding your arrow or finding first blood and what that can kind of tell you about the position of the hit. And, and no matter how many animals I've killed, um, you know, I, I think this is a good reminder. Uh, I've killed a lot of animals and I think this is stuff that I, it's just innate in me and that I already kind of know. Um, but I think this is a, a good refresher to just, you know, even for me at this point. So, you know, you work up, you find, hopefully you find your arrow. And, you know, if you don't find your arrow, you're looking for blood, signs of blood. Um, and you're, you're looking at the blood and that can really help you understand the likelihood of where your shot actually hit. So you're looking at things like the color of the blood. Uh, so a heart shot animal, the blood is going to be kind of a bright, crimson red. Um, typically a heart shot animal in response to being hit, it will give that classic mule kick response. So a lot of times, you know, deer, you know, elk probably a little bit less though, because they're such a large animal, but they can still do that. You know, a lot of times those heart shot animals will, will do that classic mule kick, you know, that hind, hind leg kick out. Uh, and typically they will take off running. 
I mean, a million miles an hour and they will just cruise and they won't go too far. And, and most often if an animal is hard shot, you'll actually hear them crash because they just don't go that far. Um, you know, if you don't hear them crash, if you don't see them crash, you know, like I said, the blood typically for a hard shot animal is that bright crimson red color. It's really bright. Uh, also muscle shot animals, they can kind of have a similar uh, color to a heart shot animal. But you're, you're looking for that bright crimson red uh, for a heart shot. And again, go back to your gut feeling. How did you feel about that shot based on, you know, your aim point and, and where the arrow hit as you watched your arrow go? So you can use that as an indication. Also think about the uh, behavior of the animal after it was hit. Um, so that's one, one little tip. Um, a lung shot animal. So lung shot animals, typically their reaction is that they will have a short burst a lot of the times they may not even look like, um, you know, they're hit. I've seen bull elk just take an arrow right between two ribs, between two lungs and make a short burst and then just stand. And this is probably the most often scenario that I've experienced in elk hunting. Uh, I can think of a couple of different hunts. One of them, uh, a bull I shot in New Mexico. I double lung that bull. He took four or five real quick steps, just ran four or five yards real fast, and then he stopped. And he was kind of looking back in my direction to try to determine what had happened, and he was just kind of looking. And he probably stood for, you know, 15, 20 seconds maybe, and then he had this moment, and you can almost see this. I've had this happen several times with animals. Uh, They're kind of looking back towards what the sound, what happened, trying to determine what happened. And they almost kind of have this like, oh shit moment. It kind of like washes over their face. You almost see it happen. And then, you know, he turned, he ran straight down into the bottom of the drainage and I heard him crash. And I would say that's most often the animal's reaction when I have lunged, double lunged an animal. Typically it's a short burst of a few quick steps and then it's standing. You know, they may not even know what happened. Um, you know, if they do kind of understand, they kind of want to flee the, the area often, they will just kind of trot out of the area or they'll steadily walk, you know, out of the country from where they were hit. Uh, it's a different kind of reaction definitely than a heart shot animal. Um, blood, when you're looking at, uh, blood from a lung shot animal, typically the blood is a lighter pinkish color and often it's got bubbles, little air bubbles in it. And as you're starting to find blood, as your blood trailing, you will often see those little air bubbles in lung blood. Um, If you see those little air bubbles, it typically means good things. It often means that you're probably going to recover the animal unless you just got one lung. Um, But look for that light pink, pinkish color blood. And like I said, looking for those air bubbles. And those air bubbles are classic of an indication of a lung shot uh, animal. Um, we're going to move down to some of the other hits that you could potentially, uh, make, uh, liver shot animals. So liver shot animals, uh, the reaction of the animal at the shot is often similar to a lung shot animal. Often they'll run a real short distance and then they'll slow to a walk or they'll even stand. Uh, typically they will travel far quicker or far farther, I should say. Uh, than a lung shot animal. Obviously, a lung shot animal is going to die relatively quick. A lung shot, a liver shot animal will just steadily move country. And it's not uncommon for a liver shot animal 
to go a quarter mile before they bed down, maybe even farther. They may even go a half a mile or a mile before they actually decide that they're in a safe enough position that they can bed down. Uh, and typically that's what they do is they will just move country slowly, steadily, and they'll get to a point where they're just not feeling that great and they'll bed down. Um, so that's kind of the the classic reaction of a, a liver shot animal. Like I said, it's real similar to a lung shot animal. Only the difference is often they will continue to cover country before they bed. Uh, liver blood. So liver is, if you think about liver, whether you've gutted an animal or processed an animal, or even if you looked at liver at a grocery store uh, when you're grocery shopping, it's kind of a dark purplish uh, red color. So it's a deep blood red purple color. Uh, liver blood will often look, um, you know, real clotty looking. It'll be dark, dark purple, red colored. If you're finding that, uh, often your arrow, when you find your arrow, uh, it will be covered in that red, um, you know, purplish color blood. Um, if you're finding that kind of sign, if you've assessed it, if you've assessed your arrow, if you've assessed the blood that you're finding and it looks like a liver shot, uh, that animal is highly likely to die, but the time it's going to take is going to be far longer than a lung shot or a heart shot animal. Uh, I would say it's it's probably best that you give it three to you know five hours, maybe even six hours before you decide to start blood trailing uh, that animal. What you ultimately want to happen is that animal to you know go the distance that they're deciding that they're going to you know go and you know, hopefully they'll bed down and then over time, uh, you know, they will get sick enough that they'll actually die from a liver hit. But if you continue to move on that blood trail and bump that animal, that animal can just keep going out ahead of you. Um, a lot of times blood trails for liver shot animals are kind of sparse. It can be hard. That can be really hard blood tracking to do. So, you know, don't push a liver shot animal. Like I said, look for the telltale signs, both in the reaction and then, you know, the color of that blood, that liver blood on your arrow and on the ground. And then if that's the assessment, you know, give it time, three to six hours before you even start to take it up and then go slow. Uh, and also go prepared to make a second shot. You know, go with the arrow knocked, ready to go if you have to make a follow-up shot. Uh, last one I'm going to move to is a gut shot animal, which is, you know, the worst, right? Nobody wants to gut shoot an animal. It's kind of the worst case scenario, to be honest. So, you know, reaction of a gut shot animal is often, um, you know, a short burst of speed. They'll run a few steps and then, you know, they may stop and then kind of that classic gut hunch. So they may arch their back, hunch their guts up, uh, I've seen deer, I've seen elk do that, um, that classic, you know, shot through the paunch. Uh, those animals react to that by kind of hunching their back, kind of, you know, looking like you just got punched in the gut, essentially. And then often they will, uh, similar to a, li a liver hit, they'll just kind of slowly walk off because they're just not feeling good. And they'll just kind of cruise off. Um, when you find first blood from a gut shot animal, if you're not quite sure, or if you find your arrow, Hopefully you find your arrow. Um, I always like to check the arrow. That's, I think, one of the best telltale signs of where you might have hit the animal. A gut shot animal, one of the first things I do is pick up the arrow um, and I give it a smell, the smell test. So I'm going to run that arrow into my nose for the length of the shaft. I'm also looking at the color of the blood or any kind of substances left on the arrow. Uh, if you've gut shot an animal, it'll, it'll smell like guts. You can kind of smell that classic gut smell. Uh, you'll also have 
often kind of that greenish brownish color of the uh, guts, kind of the food that's on the inside of the intestines and the stomach. Um, you'll kind of see that coated across your veins and, and your arrow shaft. Um, one of the reasons that I shoot white veins personally is because it's really beneficial to being able to assess the blood that's on the arrow. So when you look across a white arrow shaft, it's really easy to tell, you know, if it's bright red, if it's liver blood, or if you've got something like a gut shot where you can, you'll definitely see that brownish greenish color on the arrow. Um, gut shot animals often do not bleed that much. Um, it can be really, really tough to find a gut shot animal. Uh, if you're finding these types of uh, blood, you know, whether it's greenish, brownish colored blood, um, you know, if it's kind of watery, uh, it's not typically the best case scenario for you. And if you've de determined through all the different assessments of the situation that the animal was probably gut shot, uh, I would suggest that you leave that animal for a long time. And I'm talking like 10, 12 hours. Uh, if you've shot that animal, you know, mid afternoon, evening, you're going to give it the whole night and then come back the next day. Uh, if you shot it mid morning, uh, you know, you might be able to take that blood trail up later in the evening, but reality is I would give it, you know, 10 to 12 hours before you start uh, on that animal. Uh, this is when it becomes really important to do the other steps that I already mentioned, including, you know, making notes about the direction that you thought the animal moved, uh, your reaction to the shot. You know, how did you feel about the shot? Where did you think you hit the animal? Uh, GPSing it, taking pictures. Um, you know, doing all these things that you can to help you recover the animal, it becomes really, really important, especially on animals that are marginally hit. So take the time to do those steps. And like I said, if you think you gut shot an animal, you know, 10 to 12 hours, leave it overnight. Um, when you, you're trailing a gut shot animal, you may have to end up relying on, you know, things like tracks. You might have to really pay attention to the track of that animal and hope that you've got a conducive environment that you can actually follow the tracks because blood can be really hard to find. Um, I remember I shot a bull out of a wallow one time and I shot that bull. He was quartering away from me and the arrow kind of went in uh, behind the ribs or maybe just in the first few ribs and it hit in the offside shoulder of that bull. So I didn't have an exit that wasn't, it wasn't bleeding. And like I said, the entrance wound was kind of back mid um, body, kind of into the guts. And, you know, when that bull ran out of that wallow and he took off down Canyon, I gave him time. Um, I actually thought I had heard that bull fall over and tip over. So I was pretty certain that he was dead. Uh, but when I took up the blood trail, it was really sparse. There was hardly any blood whatsoever. Cause like I said, there wasn't an exit wound on the opposite side. Uh, and then, you know, the entrance was kind of back into that mid-body gut section. So there was hardly any blood at all. Uh, but what I used to find that bull was uh, mud. So that bull had been in the wallow. Uh, he had mud, he had water that would, had dripped off of his body. I could see these little clumps of mud as I was going down this trail and kind of following tracks and looking for blood. And I was actually able to follow that bull, you know, right down into this patch of timber. And I was able to find him really easy because I was able to follow those little globs of mud. Now, you know, I was lucky in that scenario, but it's just a, a reminder to use whatever is available to you to help you find that animal. Whether it's tracks, whether it's mud from a bull that's been in a wallow, you know, hopefully it's blood. But whatever it is that you have to use to try to find that animal, you know, use that to your advantage to help you find it. Um, 
so those are just some lessons uh, just to finish up the story of kind of my my bull. Um, I I hit that bull. He went down in the canyon. I assessed the situation. It, it looked to me, like I said, that blood was kind of a dark color. I thought he was probably liver hit. And so I gave him three hours before I decided to take up the blood trail. Uh, once I started onto the blood trail, it kind of took me down into the canyon. Uh, one thing I should also note is typically a liver uh, gut shot animal, they will often head down, you know, downhill, down towards water. Um, especially the gut shot animal, they will often head downhill towards water. So that might be a, a little tip to hopefully help you find your animal. Uh, but I started down this hill, this hill kind of working the blood. It was a little bit sparse. Uh, I got to a point where I could look across the hillside and I decided I was going to sit down and glass the hillside before I moved further up on the blood trail. So I sat down, I was glassing the canyon and I was able to see that bull and he had gone up into this thick manzanita bush and he kind of backed himself into it and bedded down. Uh, he was still alive, like I said, three hours later. Uh, at that point, I was kind of trying to assess the situation. Uh, I figured he was liver hit, uh, and I decided, you know, with the wind and the topography, I could probably slip up behind him and get a second arrow into him. So that's what I did. I worked in up behind him. Uh, I got in really tight. He stood up, and the only angle I had for the second arrow was, again, back, kind of shooting towards his off leg on the front shoulder. And I hit him way far back that time, and he went down into the canyon. This time I was able to watch him, and he went down again and kind of stood in some timber just kind of watching his back trail. And again, you could tell he was kind of hurting at this point. He'd been hit twice, uh, and he ended up bedding down, and I was able to sneak in and finish him with a third arrow, which was double, you know, double long, and he ended up dying right there. Um, that was not the best-case scenario, and I felt terrible. I actually cried. I I. I sat there and genuinely, you know, shed tears over that animal because of the situation and the way that it all worked. Um, and I wouldn't sugarcoat this at all and tell you that, you know, hunting and bow hunting is always black and white. Uh, you don't always make the best shot. You don't always get penetration. I'd hit a rib solid on this bull, um, you know, which would probably eliminate some of the penetration. I was also shooting at that time less draw weight, which I've now upped because of that. Um, but it's, it's not always black and white. These things can happen. And, you know, I, I was ultimately able to recover that animal because I was able to stay with the process, you know, work with it, work with the blood I was given, uh, and, and find that animal. Um, a couple other tips I wanted to include, uh, and this is just some facts that, uh, I thought interesting. So another little tip when you're blood trailing, uh, look for the height of the blood that you might be finding. So when an animal walks through vegetation, you know, it may brush up against the side of a tree, it may brush up against aspen saplings. Uh, pay attention to the height. Uh, I was curious as to the actual size of a, you know, an adult bull elk. So I looked at some facts and figures. So a typically adult bull is going to be four and a half to five feet tall. That's from hoof to, to the hump on the shoulder. Uh, the width of the torso on a bull elk is typically like 26 to 28 inches. Uh, so that's kind of the chest, bottom of the belly, kind of the top of the back. Um, and then is your blood trailing, like I said, you ought to be looking for that blood. Hopefully, ideally, you're talking maybe that three to three and a half foot in height. Uh, if you're finding that kind of blood, you know, your chances of killing that animal are, are probably really good and, and hopefully you'll find him. Uh, so those are just some notes uh, and a story, like I said, from a past hunt that I did. I wanted to 
kind of outline that and talk about it because I do think that this kind of stuff is really important to help you find an animal. And hopefully, you know, you guys are all going to be headed out into the woods here pretty quick and, and hopefully, you know, you're going to have a chance to shoot an arrow and find the bull that you hit. So use those tips and tricks. Um, I did want to touch on one other story and this again is just probably going to come from me being a little bit sentimental. Uh, you know, I spent the last weekend, like I said, out hunting on my own. And anytime I spend a lot of time on my own, uh, I start to thinking a lot about past hunts and past experiences. So I did want to touch on this, uh, op- this hunt that I did with my dad back in 2002. Uh, so I drawn a what they called an AR301 tag in Utah, which was, it was a random draw. There was no point system associated with it. And the odds of drawing that tag at that time were about 25%. And it was for a bull elk tag and you could hunt one or all of these three different units in Southern Utah. So I drew that tag that year. My dad drew the same tag. Uh, We spent that summer setting up new bows and shooting all summer together. And we went out and we hunted and we hunted hard. I think I killed a bull on the 14th day of that hunt. And it was very little bugling that entire hunt. In fact, the morning that I killed that bull, uh, I think we'd heard three bugles, which is probably only the first three bugles that we had heard of that entire hunt. Um, you know, that morning, I remember sitting on this canyon and kind of looking across and I could see this herd of elk moving up the drainage. I had my dad with me and there were three bulls with maybe 30 cows. So there was a herd bull and a couple of satellite bulls. And, you know, I remember thinking like, how are we going to get on these elk? And I think my dad was, you know, subtly giving me some hints, you know, like, hey, you know, where do you think those elk are headed? You know, he was putting these thoughts in my brain and making me do the do the work you know I think he knew the answers already and I think any parent any mentor to any hunter has probably done this before but essentially what he did is you know he put these questions in my head started the wheels turning like hey where are those elk going to be why are they going where they're going and I was thinking about that this weekend when I was hunting I've probably killed far more elk just by being able to anticipate where I think those elk are going to be or want to be during some time of the day than I have by calling them in or, you know, by being patient and sitting on an ambush point or a wall or something like that. Um, That ability to predict, look at elk, look at elk behavior and understand where elk are going to be, I think is is probably pretty underutilized and it's not talked a lot about uh, in regards to archery elk hunting. So I remember, like I said, that morning watching those bulls, they were kind of working up the drainage. Uh, You know, my dad's asking me, why do you think they're moving uphill this time of day? You know, and I'm starting to think about it. Well, you know, morning thermals, morning thermals are coming downhill typically. Uh, They don't start coming uphill until that sunlight hits those slopes and they start to warm up and those thermals start to move up slope. So it would make sense to me now at this point as I'm thinking about it, you know, those elk probably are moving up with those thermals coming down the slope uh, in the morning. So they've got the wind coming into their, you know, into their noses. So, you know, he's asking me those kinds of questions. He's saying, what do you think uh, is kind of at the top of this drainage? You know, where do you think they're headed? And I'm thinking, well, you know, elk like to bed mid-morning. They might feed until 10, you know, 11 o'clock in the morning potentially. Uh, But but they're probably headed towards some shady bedding area because elk are a big animal. They've got to conserve body heat. Uh, The rut is really intensive. You know, they're going to burn a lot of calories. So, 
you know, they need to both feed and then also, you know, have that thermal, you know, cover, kind of recoup, rest. Um, so he's, he's putting these thoughts in, in my mind, my dad is, and I'm thinking, ah, oh, I know at the top of this Canyon, there's kind of a big flat bench as it flattens off, you know, and I've learned since then, you know, elk like bedding areas that are, you know, one, they're very shady, you know, potentially 75 to even a hundred percent total coverage. Um, and then, you know, they like north facing slopes for the same reasons. They're often more cooler. There's more uh, moisture in the soil. Um, you know, the vegetation can be better in a north facing slope. So if they do want to get up and feed a little bit in the afternoon, they can do so without ha actually having to leave bedding cover. Um, elk typically like flatter areas to bed. They like benches, they like ridges, you know, they like areas that are maybe that, uh, you know, zero. So like flat, zero degree flat up to maybe 15 degrees. That's kind of preferred elk bedding area because, you know, they're a big animal. They like a flat area where they can kind of, you know, get comfortable and they can keep, uh, you know, vision of their surroundings. And, you know, they also, you know, like the wind, like I said, they pay attention to the wind a lot. So all these, these things about elk and elk behavior, my dad, he's kind of putting these thoughts into my mind. And I'm kind of working out the situation as I'm assessing it. And, um, you know, he's like, yeah, I think we ought to pop up onto that bench. We ought to kind of work our way towards where we think those elk are headed. And that's what we did. We worked up the face, real steep climb. You know, it took us probably two and a half, three hours. We climbed up onto that bench and we kind of topped out. I remember my dad, you know, putting his hand on my shoulder and kind of saying, hey, let's, uh, let's approach this real slow. Let's essentially just steel hunt. So we're going to take two or three steps at a time and we're going to watch out ahead of us. We're not going to go fast. We're going to pay attention to the wind and we're just going to go real slow. We're just going to kind of work our way through this bench. And I remember the vegetation was a bunch of regenerating aspen. It was relatively young at that time. Uh, there was a decent amount of deadfall, but there was also a bunch of standing dead. And uh, we did. We just started working through that. And we would take two or three steps. We'd look. We'd take two or three steps. We'd look. And we just started to pick our way through this big, flat bench. And uh, we eventually got to a point where it kind of opened up a little bit. It was kind of a meadow. And I remember kind of stepping to the edge of it. Maybe we were four or five feet from kind of breaking that plane. And I remember looking out into the meadow. And on the other side of the meadow... There was a bull, big six-point bull, and he's feeding right on the edge of the meadow, and he's kind of working from my left to right. And we very quietly worked up to the edge. We were able to kneel down behind this big ground juniper, and we kind of got tucked in behind it, and the bull was stepping out. He was kind of walking, and uh, I remember, you know, just being com just totally overwhelmed with the, with the situation, just every nerve firing, and... You know, I remember my dad kind of reaching out and saying, you know, wait, wait, be patient. And I remember at one point I wanted to draw and shoot. You know, he was standing broadside to me, but I remember my dad kind of holding me off because his front leg was uh, back, kind of tucked in back behind that perfect spot where you would want to shoot. And I remember he kind of stepped forward. He put his right leg forward, kind of opening that pocket. And I remember my dad, you know, saying to me, there's your shot. And, you know, I was able to draw undetected. His head was kind of behind a tree and I anchored in, I released the arrow, shot and just, you know, absolutely perfectly, you know, pinwheeled that bull. And he wheeled, kind of went through the timber and stood there. I could, you know, it was a short burst of speed, just like I'm saying an animal that's lung shot. 
um, short burst of speed and then kind of slowed to a walk and then just stood. And then he took a few more steps and then he just tipped over and died right there, uh, in the edge of these Aspen. Um, and that was my first bull, my first six point bull. Um, and I was ecstatic over the moon. Um, you know, to get to share that with my dad was incredible. Uh, it, it was a lesson in elk hunting and anticipating elk and learning elk behavior. And I think, like I said, I would highly encourage you guys as you're out there, you may not even be in the hunt. You may not be on a bull, but you might have the opportunity to sit and watch elk. They might be a whole drainage away from you. Uh, and you may not be able to make a play on those elk for another day, uh, just given the amount of space and time it takes to navigate some of this country. Um, but learn to watch elk, learn their behavior, learn the areas that they like to bed, learn their needs, you know, look at those kinds of features, uh, that I've talked about those shady North facing slopes, those kinds of flat benchy areas where elk prefer to bed. As you're watching those herds, learn to anticipate where elk are going to be and why they're going to be there and use that information to your advantage to help you ambush. Uh, and like I said, I've killed a good number of elk that way just by being able to anticipate where they are going to be, why they want to be there, and then just working my way in and actually either, you know, calling them at that point to me or just sneaking in and simply getting a shot. So use that to your advantage. Use elk anticipation to your advantage. Um, the other thing I want to talk about in regards to that hunt I did with my dad, uh, this is kind of where the sentimental part of this podcast, I guess, gets going, but uh, that was probably the last hunt that I was able to do with my dad where his health was at a point where he could really hunt hard with me. Uh, since that time, he's had a number of back surgeries. He's had some nerve damage, uh, and you know, he's in good health, but his health at that point was, was the best that I can remember where, you know, he and I could actually hunt really, really hard together, which we did that year. Um, you just never know what's going to happen. Like you don't know the health issues that you might face in a year from now. You don't know what's going to happen in your life. Um, so I guess the point of this entire thing that I'm trying to make is take the time to be uh, present in your hunt and be specifically present with the people that you're with. If you're hunting with a hunting partner, if it's a good friend, I hope so. Uh, if you're hunting with a family member, whether it's a brother or a sister or your mom or your dad, uh, take the time to be present with them. Spend time talking to them. Find out about their lives. I mean, there's so there's so much time when you're out there, whether it's a mid-afternoon. I remember my dad, he would often, you know, mid-afternoon, he would want us to hike down to a creek and we would peel off our boots stick our feet in the creek, you know, often he would pretty much dive right in those creeks. Uh, he was the original, you know, cold plunger, I guess, 20 years before it was cool. But he used to talk to me about how that would rejuvenate his system. And I, I agree it did, you know, you dip your head in a cold mountain lake. Um, you feel like a brand new person after that, but, um, you know, take the time those mid afternoons to, to talk to your hunting partners, talk to your family, uh, and kind of find out about them. I don't think that we, we take the time to have conversations anymore. Uh, and I think when you're out in the woods, it's a great time to do so. Spend time with them, find out about their lives, um, you know, talk about the things that matter in your life. Uh, the other thing I think is important is to take the time to learn from your partner. If you have a hunting partner, if you have a parent like I did, you know, take the time to learn, make notes, um, 
you know, looking back on that hunt that I did with my dad, I wished I had made notes. I wished I had journaled. I wished I had uh, taken more photos. Uh, I wished I could go through day by day and recount that entire experience because, like I said, it was really the last time that, uh, you know, he was really healthy and able to hunt uh, like he wanted to and like he did when he was in his 20s and 30s uh, and even his early 40s. But, um, yeah, take the time, be present, you guys. Um, you know, just enjoy the experience, enjoy the people in your lives because you just never know. So that's the, the sentimental part of the, part of the podcast. Um, yeah, I appreciate you guys putting up with that. Uh, hopefully, you know, it wasn't too soft for you. But, um, you know, it's September. Good luck, everybody. I hope you go out and, and hunt hard. I know that I'm super excited as soon as I wrap this up. I'm going to get my gear together and head out and, and spend a solid week. And then, like I said, I've got some upcoming hunts. I'm going to hunt with uh, Chris Neville again in Colorado. Um, so I'm really looking forward to that. I'm really looking forward to being out in the elk woods. I did hear my very first bugle of the year on Sunday night, which there's nothing like that sound of a bugle and bull elk. It's hands down. I think it's the best sound in the world. Uh, I really, really love that animal. And, you know, good luck to you guys. I hope that you get out. I hope you you have a good time. I hope you have a good hunt. Um, hopefully you've learned something today and kind of the blood uh, tracking information I gave you. They can use that to your advantage. But good luck to you. Um, so this is me signing off. Uh, hopefully next time I'm, I'm back on the podcast, uh, I'll have some stories from me from this last week. So good luck to all of you. And thanks for listening to the Game Trail Podcast. Mm-hmm.